We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Luke chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to Luke 4, 13. So starting at Luke 3, verse 1, says this. <coughs> In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Traconitus and Lysianus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Then he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorised to do. <coughs> Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptise you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winning fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began the ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nehum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, 
the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, <coughs> the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosan, the son of Almadan, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza, the son of Joram, the son of Mathats, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ani, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <coughs> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. There is an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that. And at the end, there'll be an opportunity for any questions or comments, so you can save them up as we go through but before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is good, sovereign and truthful. And therefore we pray as your people that we would vindicate who you are in our response to your word. That we would be those who would listen to your word, trust it and obey it as your sovereign word to us, your people. For Jesus' sake, amen. In recent years, 
Christianity in the West has been described as largely repentantless Christianity. It's the idea that the church no longer calls on people to turn from their sin to God, but rather the church has come to preach forgiveness and love and inclusion without requiring repentance. I wonder if you think that there might be a case for such a view. And bearing in mind the present state of our culture, it's not as unexpected as we might think. One aspect of our culture is that it's now a therapy culture. In the past, our culture has been much more willing to talk in terms of what is ethically wrong with a human being. But now, we talk in therapeutic terms. We talk about healing and wholeness, rather than, say, forgiveness. And for this reason, salvation is no longer to do with repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but rather the treatment and cure of whatever your problem happens to be. It's a therapy culture for patients, not sinners. Another aspect of our present culture is its sense of entitlement. Patients are entitled. Entitlement means we don't even have to earn the things that we want. You just have to give them uh, to me because I am me. And so why bother to repent? when we can just presume on God and take him for granted. In other words, in a therapy culture, with its sense of entitlement, repentance is not going to go down well. We're not going to want to tell people that they're wrong and they need to change. Well, what do you think? Does our present culture rule out repentance? Or is it just a question of emphasis or a matter of taste? What place ought repentance to have in the Christian message? Well, the language of repentance occurs most often in the narrative parts of the New Testament and in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts in particular. Repentance both introduces and concludes Luke's gospel. So John the Baptist at the beginning is one, says Gabriel, who will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. Chapter 1, verse 16. And very near the end of the gospel, the risen Jesus tells his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Chapter 24, verse 47. So as we go through this series... Luke is going to be a good place to be learning about repentance and its relationship to God's salvation and the Christian message. Now, John's ministry begins with this detailed historical setting provided by Luke. So what we've got here, Luke is placing John's ministry in the midst of world history. Now, these events occurred in the public square, and Luke's extended effort to date John's arrival shows just how important this event is. The quote uh, you'll see there in your Bibles from Isaiah in in verses 4 to 6, anticipate one who will come who will prepare the way of the Lord. 
And in the subsequent verses, we see precisely how John fulfills that role. John's message prepares the people for the coming of salvation with a call to repent. Have a look at Luke chapter 3, verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's ministry is to call to repent, is a call to repent as God's promised salvation draws near. Now we might, for a moment, be tempted to think that repentance is a New Testament idea. But the framework for repentance is established back in Deuteronomy. So if you'd like to, do turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3. Deuteronomy 30, pick it up at verse 1. It says this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, <coughs> then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay, let me just make a few observations. So in verse 1, we have the blessings and the curses, and the curses, of course, assume sin. And the sin in view here is Israel's sin, her unfaithfulness to the Lord. But then in verse 2, you have repentance. We have Israel called to return to God. And in verse 3, the consequences of this repentance, we have the God's mercy and restoration of his people. Okay, it's clear as day in Deuteronomy 30. And actually, when you start looking for it, it's all the way through. It's a pattern that we'll see again and again. I was going to make reference to Daniel 9 because that's particularly clear, but if you were there on Wednesday, we saw it in Zechariah 1 and 2, this pattern of Israel's sin, a call to repent, to turn to God, and then receiving God's mercy. Now, this is significant. Not only that repentance is, is not, when we start the Gospels, an empty category that we then have to fill. It's a, it's a rich category that already has substance from um, the Old Testament scriptures. But the particular thing I want us to see now is that it's significant because John is not calling on Gentiles to repent at this point. See, if he were what would he be asking Gentiles to repent of? I mean, how can you even call a Gentile to repent? You can't call Gentiles to covenant faithfulness because they're not in the covenant. They're not part of God's chosen people at this point. John is calling unfaithful Israel to repent, to turn to the Lord their God, that they might be restored by him. Now, this is going to raise important questions of how repentance is universaliable, if that's even a word. 
So repentance is universalizable. And Luke's going to show it in two stages. In the gospel, the Jews must repent. And that's going to include the apparently faithful group of the Pharisees and the apparently unfaithful group of the tax collectors. And in Acts, Luke shows that the Jews must repent of their complicitness in Jesus' death. And then only then, the Gentiles must repent because of their idolatry. Now, that John is not playing games here is evident from the question that he addresses the crowd with, those who sought to be baptised by him. So chapter 3, verse 7, if you look back in Luke, chapter 3, verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, it's as though the people don't really understand what his baptism is all about. I mean, they are about to witness the fulfilment of God's purpose for humanity, for the world. And with the nearness of judgment, there is this call of true repentance and a warning that Jewish heritage alone is not good enough to escape the wrath of God. John's message prepares the people for the coming salvation with a call to repent. In verse 10, the people ask, what shall we do? And John's reply informs us as to what repentance actually is. Repentance is seen as fruit-bearing. And verses 10 to 14, if you look, are an exhortation about the product of repentance. You know, the, the appropriate fruit of repentance for the crowd for tax collectors and for soldiers. And John's reply is exceedingly practical. I mean, he doesn't call the crowd to an ascetic lifestyle. He doesn't call them to commit to a series of religious acts. He doesn't even point them to the sacrifices associated with the Jewish faith. Rather, he points to meeting the needs of others. Fruit is seen here in terms of covenant faithfulness. Now, this is going to be something for us to keep an eye on as we go through Luke's gospel. Because what Luke is going to provide us with is a characterization of people who are repentant and a characterization of people who are not repentant. Now, for the unrepentant, the character group that Luke presents us with will be that of the Pharisee and the scribe. And two characteristics of this unrepentant group will stand out. One is pride, the other is hypocrisy. For the repentant, the character group that Luke presents us with will be that of the tax collector and sinner. And two characteristics of the repentant are humility and forgiveness. And in each case, there is fruit which relates to how we relate to other people, whether it's bad fruit or good fruit. Now, back in Luke chapter 3, Herod himself contributes to a characterization of someone who is unrepentant. 
verse 20. In particular, I mean, he, he highlights the, the tragedy of someone who is unrepentant. Because he not only rejects having his sin confronted by John, but he rejects having his sin exposed when, even when forgiveness is offered at the same time. Well, from chapter 3, verse 23, we are provided with a genealogy of Jesus. And it's insightful to compare it with the one provided by Matthew in his gospel. And there's one very significant difference. I wonder if you know what it is. Matthew provides his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And there the genealogy of Jesus goes back as far as Abraham. Or to put it another way, it begins with Abraham and then traces Jesus as a descendant of this one. But in Luke, it's different. The key feature of the genealogy in Luke is that it goes back past Abraham to Adam. So chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of, and so on. Then jump to verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke wants us to see significance in Jesus' relationship to Adam. And this, of course, prepares us for and helps us make sense of what happens next. Commonly known as the temptation of Jesus, Luke in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, describe how Jesus is tempted by the devil. Now, do note that being exposed to these temptations are not a shortcoming of Jesus in any way. We're told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, verse 2. The temptations of Jesus find a parallel with those of Adam. <coughs> so, in verse 3, the devil was suggesting that God was abandoning Jesus, and so he had better look out for himself. <coughs> Is God not treating you poorly? implies the devil. It's a denial of God's goodness, which finds its parallel back in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan implies that God is withholding something good from him in denying him to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in verses 5 to 7, the devil tempts Jesus with what can be his if only he will worship him. This, of course, is a denial of God's sovereignty which finds its parallel back in Genesis 3, when Adam decides to obey the serpent rather than God. And then in verses 9 to 11, the devil tempts Jesus to test God's protection. And this is a denial of God's truthfulness, which finds its parallel back in Genesis 3, when Adam doubts that God said he will surely die if he eats from the tree. Jesus was successful where Adam failed. 
It's interesting that this text is so readily referred to in terms of the temptation of Jesus. Because in many ways, it's not about his temptation, but his victory. Jesus is the obedient son. Jesus is successful in temptation where others like Israel and Adam failed. All three tests challenge God's promise about Jesus' sonship as revealed at the baptism in 322. And his victory signals that Jesus comes for all people as the second but successful Adam. Now, to be fair, Jesus' ministry will be loaded with demonic challenges. We're going to see it again next week in chapter 4, and then later in chapter 8. And such satanic pressure intensifies in Luke chapter 22. The battle between the adversary and Jesus is going to be a constant one in the gospel. But here, Luke is indicating that it is a battle that will be victorious and secures the salvation of his people. Well, we began by observing why so much of Christianity in the West can be repentantless, not least because it fits with our therapy culture and its sense of entitlement. And what we're beginning to see is that the language of repentance occurs most often in the narrative parts of the New Testament, and in particular, Luke and Acts. Not so much the letters. Now, you might think that this is going to make the task of understanding repentance more difficult. But plain logical argument is not superior to narrative. I mean, it's simpler. That's why we like it. But it's also more restricted. There's less to confuse, but also less to enrich. And so what we're going to see as we read through Luke, or one of the things we're going to see and to keep an eye on, is an understanding of repentance that is cumulatively formed. It's a bit more subtle than a systematic textbook, but the picture formed is in more dimensions. And it will be crucial to understanding how God expects us to respond to the coming of the Son for us and our salvation. At the end of the day, repentance in Luke is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray, and I'll open it up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you to those who have gone before us who have pointed out uh, uh, aspects of repentantless Christianity uh, in the UK and pray that we would be alert to that and see how our culture is not conducive for hearing our call to repentance. And so we thank you very much for your word and the opportunity that the coming weeks will have as we read through Luke to uh, understand how you want us to respond to the coming 
of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, please, that we might understand repentance in its um, historical context of the Old Testament, of turning from sin to you and receiving mercy. And also the challenge that uh, those who are repentant bear the fruit of repentance, of uh, humility and forgiveness towards others. And Father, we thank you that this is only possible because of the coming of your Son. And we thank you how Luke anticipates his victory over Satan, uh, an, an adversary who was effective in Genesis 3 and has been unmatched up until this point. And so we uh, thank you that we can put our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory so that as we repent and turn to you, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and are restored uh, to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, at this point, would anyone like to make any comments or ask any questions? Sure, yes. So, um, yeah, that was a bit sneaky of me. I, I, you're, <laughs> I didn't really unpack that, but you just think, oh, I want to leave it in. So, yeah, the question is, <coughs> in, um, I mean, there's lots to say because I guess I explored, um, or we explored together Luke 4 in terms of um, its parallel with Adam. But interestingly, he's led into the desert, and so I think you could also explore it as a parallel with Israel and actually how Israel tempted and was failed. So it's, it is, it's so rich. And this is always a thing that when you get to this part of the Bible, so much has happened. There are so many lines to connect and you know, um, inferences to make. Um, but I, I thought Adam was... Um, um, it was right to start with him precisely because the genealogy leads us with Jesus as son of Adam, and that kind of takes you back to Genesis 3 and um, Adam's temptation with the serpent. And then, you know, you just say, oh, wow, this, is, this then becomes significant. You know, the serpent crushes here. We've been waiting for this ever since Genesis 3. This is, this is, this is big. Um, so the, the challenge of sonship was... Um, so do you notice back in chapter 3, verse um, 22, uh, that the voice from heaven, so God says of this one, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Um, now the, the reference here takes us back to, we're going to look to Simon here, for what's, where, where are we going Simon? Psalm 2, yeah, well done. <laughs> so when I ask you, your mind goes blank. I know you were there. Psalm 2, so you want to have a look at Psalm 2. Um, so Psalm 2 is what the Lord... Um, basically, you've got three kind of characters in Psalm 2. You've got the Lord, you've got his anointed, and then you've got the enemies. Um, so... Right, let me just read it from the beginning because <coughs> it makes sense then. So it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here you have the Lord and his anointed. That's the king. That, 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So at this point, the king, the Lord and his king are being contested by the nations who are opposed to them. And the whole question is, why are you doing that? It's a stupid thing to do. Um, and then verse 4, he who sits on the heavens in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, so the me here now is the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it goes on. But you notice there in verse 7, you get this, um, uh, we learn more about the relationship between the Lord and his anointed, and that um, the Lord says to his anointed, you are my son. In other words, that's the, the relationship. And we've seen that already with David and with Solomon, that actually the kings of Israel uh, relate as sons to God, and partly tied up with the son does what the father does. And so basically the rule of the king is actually bringing about God's rule to his people. He's not a rival to the Lord. But do you notice that the promise here uh, in verse 8 is, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, this king will inherit the whole world. Basically, and you have to, and this raises the question, who is the Lord God that when you ask of him, um, make the nations my heritage, he's able to give them as the heritage. And he can do that because he is the creator and therefore the owner of everything and therefore he's free to give it to whom he will. And here we're getting the insight is that the father is going to give the son everything, the whole of creation. So with that in mind, if you go back to Luke 3, if you look at when he says, the devil says, um, verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So now that kind of feels like that's just not just any old temptation for greed. That's a temptation for him to inherit everything because the devil's saying, it's mine to give to you. Therefore, worship me and I will give you everything. So in other words, that's conflicting with the purpose and sonship of Jesus because Jesus will inherit everything, but the way he will inherit everything is by being obedient to the Father. And that's going to involve him going to Jerusalem to suffer, die, rise, and then he will be given all authority and power um, over all the nations of the world. So I think, so it's a bit of a long-winded round, Susie, just saying, you know, you can kind of, because sometimes you get to chapter four, and it can be like, this is how Jesus was tempted, how are you tempted? We can learn some lessons for how to be tempted. But you kind of think, you know, there may be some implications for that, but you, you think this is 
This is much bigger than that because this is about a successful second Adam. But also these temptations are quite peculiar because they're temptations of an alternative sonship. It's like a parody on sonship. There's another way that you can rule the world. Um, but that's one that Jesus rejects. And wonderfully he says in verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So here you see the resolve of Jesus. He's going to be an obedient son to the Father, and that's going to be a theme all the way through. I don't know, does that... Is that... Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it is quite cool. I think one of the nice things about... It's funny, because you sometimes think... The, well, I don't know. I mean, Tom will probably be talking about this with John, but you're going to get to the Gospels, and you think this is where it all begins. But actually, this is where it all comes together. So this is a place where you can just dwell and make connections and think, oh, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. Josh. Yes, sure. So question about the different temptations. If, if we've looked at the one about God's sovereignty and is the second one. I mean, in many ways, it's, you know, <coughs> I don't want to sort of over, you know, over sort of parallel. In many ways, I'm, I'm just trying to have to see there's, there are parallels to draw out. But I think there's elements in 9 to 11 um, about um, doubting God's truthfulness. Because in many ways... Um, the devil is, is goading Jesus and saying, look, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here because actually you don't need to worry because the angels uh, will guard you. Um, so there's, there's that kind of like, you kind of think, is God to be believed? If you throw, if you throw yourself down from here, will you be, what will happen? And it, it's bringing that word into doubt. So it's not quite as blatant as, Genesis 3 of, you will not surely die, but it's, 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 it's raising that issue of, here's a promise from God, test it, you know, let, let's, um, you know, how, how sure are you, how sure are you really? So I think it's that kind of um, bringing into question the truthfulness of, of God's, um, God's word. Um, yeah. Um, Yes, and so here in verse 12, Jesus' answer is, you, know, you should not put the Lord your God to test. So he's not prepared to test the truthfulness of God's word in terms of that's not what, um, um, that's not up for grabs. Um, but it's just been, it's been a theme of the devil is, you know, he is a deceiver. He basically misrepresents God and um, makes him out for something that he isn't. But again, you see Jesus, one who says, no, I'm not, I'm not prepared to test the word of God. Um, I'm, um, I'm going to do his will. Okay. Cool. Time for more? Nathan. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I mean, you kind of said it. <laughs> so yeah, so I think the, um, the I mean, it'd be interesting, I don't have the references here, but you know when it goes through the, um, um, in chapter three, you've got the, the people say, what must we do? And then he goes through the different groups. So he says to the crowds, to the um, tax collectors, and to the soldiers. And then that fruit is relational in terms of how they're relating to one another. But I think what we're to understand that is, is as part of the covenant community, this is how they're to, to rightly relate to one another. So again, I mean, yeah, it'd be interesting. I'm, I can follow it up. But these elements aren't just sort of random elements. You just think, if I tick that one off, I tick that one off, I tick that one off. And we read them, and we just think, well, what does that even look like today? But basically what he's saying is, actually, if you're serious about receiving my baptism, then you really do need to repent. And if you do repent, that's not only going to mean that you you're restored in your covenant relationship to God, but then your covenant relationship with the people of God will be, will be restored. So I think those elements, and I suspect at least some of those elements you'd find in, in their instructions back in the Old Testament as to how they relate, uh, relate to one another. So I think that's, what, that's kind of what's going on. But you don't need to worry, because you might be thinking, well, hang on, where does that leave us? Well, we just need to be patient and enjoy the ride, but that's, it's a kind of a Deuteronomy 30 type thing of basically salvation's coming, what do the people need to do? They need to turn back to God and live as his people. Um, okay, cool. All right, let's leave it there. We're going to sing again, um, O to see the dawn. So um, catch your breath and then uh, do stand as the music begins. <laughs>